hear the reading of the word from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lie a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him and that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This concludes the reading. I I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the, the prayer of intercession that I prayed, but can elaborate a bit more right now. There, there is, I think, friends, a significant emotional disconnect between a lot of the commercials that we watch on TV this time of year and the realities of real life. So just think with me about this for a second, okay? Whether you're, you're talking about buying cars or buying iPhones or or buying a new prescription drug, I've noticed that everyone on the screen is full of joy and cheer. Have you seen that? Never seen anybody trying to sell a new prescription drug and everybody's just morose and so sad. I mean, they might start out that way, right? But by the end, it's summer and kids, lawnmower, barbecue. Yeah. So I, I get that from an advertising standpoint. Uh, nobody in a marketing department wants us to associate their product with doom and gloom. They want us to think, maybe if I buy that, get that, well, then I'll feel what all those smiling people on TV seem to be feeling. But I think a lot of us know better than that. Certainly, if you've lived through 2020, uh, the, the world is not brimming with happiness. What, what you see in those commercials isn't reality. The real world is riddled by viral pandemics and political rivalry 
and racial injustice and miscarriage and chronic illness to, to name just a few of the troubles around us. And then, you know, add to their number, right? That the whole constellation of troubles within us impatience and ingratitude and sinful anger and sexual infidelity and eating disorders and broken relationships. And I've noticed that most people, including myself, we tend to respond to trouble by either ignoring what's wrong. Some of us are really good at that. (laughs) I'm envious. Or trying to fix what's wrong. How many of you are ignorers? Well, just a couple. How many of you are fixers? Yeah, that's, that's me. So I think that when we try to fix trouble around us or within us, that we tend to default to one of two approaches. So see if you can relate to this, okay? Either, either we board the social justice train, placing our hope in other people to make the world a better place. Or we buy a ticket for the self-improvement train, placing our hope in ourselves and what we can do and accomplish to resolve the problems around us and within us. I want you to listen to me very carefully here so you don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Both efforts contain an element of wisdom. I'll leave it at that but as an ultimate hope for restoration and healing. They are utterly inadequate and spiritually deadly. Both trains. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 tells us why. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. So so whether the, the man, right, is other people or yourself, the reality is we cannot make everything sad come untrue. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Hope in man or we're a human institution. Okay, whether that's your parents, your spouse, the U.S. government, that will inevitably disappoint you. And in contrast, Jeremiah 17 verse 7 declares, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. What's the point of all that? That that no matter the situation, no matter whether the the trouble du jour is around you or inside of you, the hope and help we need comes from God, not man. And it's found in Jesus. And that is the whole point of John 5, 1 to 18. Okay, whether the healing you need or think you need is, is physical or spiritual, don't look to other people. <laughs> look to God. Look to Jesus. And there are two actions that, that Jesus takes in here in this passage that, that affirm the wisdom of doing that. 
okay, of, of making what, what I will call the daily exchange. What's that? Exchanging confidence in men for confidence in Christ. And friend, that is an exchange that we don't make once <laughs> and move on from. That, that, that's an exchange we need to make every single day. Here's how the Lord convinces us of that. Two actions on Jesus' part. Point number one, Jesus displays the decisive power of his mercy. Just have two points this morning. Jesus displays the decisive power of his mercy. Look at verse one with me, John chapter five. Jesus takes with his disciples, presumably, a trip to Jerusalem. And the occasion for that is this unnamed feast of the Jews. We don't know exactly what feast that was, but think of it this way, okay? It's a holiday weekend. So as I was working on this, I thought, this is a great passage. It might as well be, you know, and it was Thanksgiving and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So, so think, this was sort of the ancient equivalent of an extended time of national remembrance and Thanksgiving for the Lord's goodness. So you should imagine hordes of people, this is pre-COVID, right? Hordes of people milling around, hanging out, talking loudly, seeing family, food and wine just everywhere. That's the scene. But in the midst of that party, suffering remained. You ever felt that kind of disconnect over the holidays? All this feasting, crazy, but but I'm suffering. Well, suffering remained back then too. Verse three, at a place called the Pool of Bethesda, which was in Jerusalem, there were a multitude of invalids. No hospitals, right? Not in that time. No, no disability checks, no, no GoFundMe pages, <laughs> no government resources. If, if you were an invalid physically, you were completely on your own. Unless you happen to have family or friends who were willing to do whatever you needed to take care of you. Unable to work for a living, most of these invalids were confined to lying on the ground by this pool surrounded by filth, begging for food, completely dependent on the mercy of strangers. I mean, that, just think about that. That, that. that was a pitiful and degrading existence. And John tells us in, in verse five that one man lying at Bethesda had been an invalid for 38 years years, 38 years, that's a long time, that, that, that's longer than many people lived back then, okay, and we don't even know exactly when he became an invalid, so, so this is an old man, and the exact nature of his physical illness, John doesn't tell us, we know it was a chronic condition, that he wasn't able to stand, he, he couldn't walk, For all this guy knew, that condition would accompany him to the grave. And John doesn't say exactly what this man was thinking or feeling on this particular day. But he is not silent about the activity of Christ. 
Look at verse six. Because Jesus' compassion here is palpable. What what does the Lord do? Look at verse six. First, he sees the man lying there. He sees him lying there. He, He may have been, he probably was, invisible to the feasting world around him. But he was not invisible to God. The Lord saw him in his suffering. And he sees you too, friend. He he saw the man. Second, Jesus knew the man. Notice, he hasn't said anything yet to Jesus in verse 6. Hasn't said a word. Hasn't downloaded a story. And yet, Jesus knew what? He had already been there a long time. You could say that again. You know, I think sometimes we think that, that because God is eternal, that, that he's unbound by time, that, that he must be unconcerned or, or emotionally indifferent to the toll of years of earthly sorrow. Well, verse six tells you, friend, that's not true. That's not the case. Not, not a single day of suffering escapes Jesus' notice. So he sees the man. He knows the man. Finally, he speaks to the man. Now, here's where we need to slow down. Okay, because Jesus had the power to do what? To immediately make him well by the sheer force of his sovereign will. Do you believe that? He could have immediately made that man well. No conversation necessary, no no eye contact necessary. I mean, if, if God can say, let there be light, and there's light, he, he could have, by executive fiat, and, and Congress could not have raised a ruckus, you are well. But Jesus didn't do that. That wasn't his approach, at least not initially. What's up with that? What he's doing here, friend, is is he's engaging the man relationally in the midst of his suffering through the gift of his word. You don't have sympathetic solidarity from afar. Hey, I, I see you. I know you. I feel for you. You know, thoughts and prayers. No, G- Jesus is leaning in. He's making it personal. He's, he's getting involved. He's pursuing relationship. And he's the same God today, friends. He's, he's eager to engage with you in your suffering through the power of his word. And, and he begins here with, with a really curious question. I mean, maybe, maybe this caught your ear when Stephen was reading earlier. What, what's he say to the man? Do you want to be healed? <laughs> Do you want to be healed? Th- there is a part of me that I, I can imagine, you know, 
one of Jesus' disciples, you're kind of there watching, and did he, did, you think he wants to be healed? I mean, wait, I know teachers will say there's no such thing as a dumb question. When I first read that, I think that, that's crazy. Why would you even ask that? Just, just fix the guy's problem and stop, jab, you know, yabbering and let's move on to the next people. We got a whole group of people here to heal Jesus. So next. Friends, it's not a dumb question. It's a brilliant question. Because Jesus knows that chronic physical suffering creates an enormous temptation to cynical resignation. It sounds like this. If God wanted to heal me, surely he would have done it by now. I guess this is just going to be my lot in life. Thanks for praying community group, but really just don't bother anymore. It is what it is. Kesarasara for you Latin types. Jesus' approach here with this question reminds us that God is after something far greater than alleviating your bodily suffering, my friend. He's, he's after your heart. He's, he's leaning in to the nature of your faith and whether you're willing to, to look to him and keep on looking to him for the healing and deliverance that he alone can provide. And so with a simple question, Jesus challenges this aging man to, to confess his need and to cry out to the savior standing in front of him for healing. He's inviting him to do that. He's, he's setting him up for that. You know, if it's volleyball, it's like set, come on, buddy. And if this were a fairy tale, we would expect what? That in the next moment, the man says, yes, Jesus. <laughs> a thousand times, yes. I've been waiting for you and turning my eyes toward you my whole life. Please have mercy and heal my body. I'm completely convinced you're able. And then, you know, you'd, you'd cue the music for kind of an orchestral man of faith theme. But this isn't a fairy tale, right? This is reality. And this guy is just like us. What does he say back in verse seven? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Well, just a little background here. What, what, what's this pool he's talking about? Well, the, the pool at Bethesda was large and normally placid or calm. So it was rumored, though, to, to have healing power when it, whenever it became agitated by the supposed stirring of an angel. So let's just say that's a ready example of superstition at its finest. <laughs> But it also explains why you had all these invalids spending years hovering around the pool, believing that the first person to get into the water after it was stirred by the angel would be cured of their illness. We don't know if that actually ever happened, but apparently it's what a lot of people thought. So the man's reply to Jesus' question is an implicit yes. Yes, I want to be healed, but, but notice here, friends, his reply is anything 
but an expression of faith in the Lord. Okay, to the contrary, his, his articulation, listen to this, of the problem, his description of the problem and the solution, the problem and the solution is completely man-centered. What's the problem? What's the problem? I'm not healed because other people keep getting into the pool before I can. You see that? What's the solution? What'll fix this? Well, I need someone who can lower me into the pool before that guy gets in. Think about this. The the one person who actually had power to heal the man is standing in front of him. You realize that? Standing in front of him and he's offering to help. The son of God is saying to this man, good morning, do you want to be healed? And what's he do? What's he do? He doesn't ask Jesus at all. He goes off on what other people need to stop doing or start doing in order for his world to be made right again. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) We're more like this guy than we realize. Why, Why can't my spouse fill in the blank? Why can't my boss fill in the blank? Why, why, why can't all of those people in that tribe with that skin color just quit doing fill in the blank? If they would just stop being part of the problem, start being part of the solution, then my suffering would go away and I would be healed. Question for you, friend. Regardless of the purported healing power of the water. Okay, were, were real people beating that man into the pool? Yeah. Did, did the guy really actually lack any friend or family member who could lower him down in that thing first? Yes. Absolutely. Selfishness hurts. And isolation just makes it worse. His, his sorrows, in other words, were real. But here's the problem. When, when we focus primarily, when, when our attention is all bound up on what other people are doing or not doing, we start thinking of them as our functional savior. Okay, we, we, we lose our ability to, to see God. Or to trust God, even if he's literally standing in front of us. Why? Because we've already, prior to that moment, elevated someone else into his position. So no matter what we know is true about God in our minds, we've already chosen that person, those people, as God in our hearts which leaves no room for the one who actually is. We, we, we think just like this man. What's he doing? That the behavior of men 
is the reason I'm suffering. Therefore, a change in the behavior of men is my only hope for deliverance. If you set your heart, my friend, on the salvation that comes from men, you will blind yourself to the presence and power of God. Remember that. But also notice this. Look at verse 8. Praise God for this. Jesus' supernatural work is never held hostage by our unbelieving idolatry. Never. Okay, the, the man doesn't express any faith in Jesus' power to heal. No, none at all. He, he, it's almost like he, he doesn't even notice him. His whole gaze is on what people are doing or not doing. And yet, that doesn't keep Jesus on the sideline. You know, sometimes we can think, those of you that like playing soccer, that, you know, J- Jesus is like the, the guy on the bench. And he has to wait for the, the substitute sign. You know, the who's coming on, who's coming off thing, red, green. You've ever seen that? A professional match. <laughs> In order to get into the game, you know, that, that substitute sign of, of human faith has to be held up before Jesus can get in the game. We can think like that. It's not the truth. Jesus does what? He creates an opportunity for this man to exercise faith. He says, do you want to be healed? But then he sovereignly acts to awaken the very faith he requires. What's he do? In the greatness of his mercy, he immediately heals this man by the word of his power. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. But before he could even recognize Jesus, but before he could even ask Jesus for healing, what did Jesus do? He miraculously intervened in his body, displaying the decisive power of his mercy. That's what Jesus did. And he did it to teach us, friends, that the healing and deliverance that you need isn't something other people can provide. You need the Lord. You need Jesus. He's the only one who has the power to heal your body. And he's the only one who has the power to heal your soul. What, What did Jesus say to the man? Verse 14, when he went and found him in the temple afterward. See, you're well. Your body as well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Nothing worse. (laughs) I mean, I'll just speak for myself as a representative member of a culture, our culture, that worships health and wellness. We worship it. What could be worse than 38 years of lying in your own filth, begging for food? What could be worse than that? There is something far worse, friend, 
It's an eternity of righteous judgment. And the fires of hell, on account of your rebellion against the authority of God, that's worse. Which means spiritual reconciliation in your relationship with God is your greatest need. Okay, that, that's a relationship that, that our sin destroys, but Jesus makes new through the redeeming power of his life and his death and his resurrection. It's why Jesus urged the man to repent and believe. That, that's what he's saying when he says sin no more. Translation, repent and believe. Turn, turn away from doing life your way and turn toward the path of obedient trust in Jesus. Why is that necessary? Because Jesus demonstrated the decisive power of his mercy in the man's body so that he would recognize and trust Jesus as the only one who could save his soul. And if you have placed your trust in Christ for that friend, then you need to know that a restored relationship with God through Christ doesn't doesn't guarantee physical healing in this life. That's not the whole point of this passage. There were many times Jesus delights to do that. And if you have been struggling with chronic illness, any of the other elders, we would love to pray with you after the service this morning. But here's what Jesus' restoration of our soul and our relationship with God does do. It guarantees the healing of our bodies in the life to come. So whether we experience his healing power now or then, what's the big picture point? Healing comes from God, not man. Comes from God, not man. So if you're sick, friend, if if all is not well with your body or your soul, don't set your hope on finding the right doctor or tracking down the right counselor, or reading the right Christian blog, or praying the perfect prayer. Okay, set your hope on Jesus. Okay, the Lord will use those means of grace to care for you. But here's what we have to watch out for. Take care lest you create a functional pool of Bethesda. And what? Disconnect the power of God from the person of God. Don't do that. A man cannot heal you, nor can you save yourself. Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who saves. And so you have here in John 5 against every form of superstitious panentheism, (laughs) the power of God displayed where? Where do we discover, where do we find the power of God to save our bodies, to save our souls? It's in the person of Jesus. You you want to find the power of God. Don't don't wander the world, surveying all the religious possibilities, picking up like a souvenir collector. Well, you know, a little power over there, a little power over here, a little power over there. Wow, I've I've assembled God's power from... (laughs) That will never work. Never work. Why not? Because the power of God is displayed in the person of God. You can't disconnect those things. 
Jesus delights to display the decisive power of his mercy. Here's the second and final thing he does here, action on his part. Jesus asserts the truth of his divine identity. What's this all about? Well, the day Jesus healed the man was no accident. Okay, it was the Sabbath, which back then would have been Saturday. And that was a day of rest from normal work that the Lord instituted for his people in Exodus 20, verse 10, as a, as a weekly exercise in humble dependence on the God who saves. If, if you want to know, okay, what was, the, what was the Jewish Sabbath all about? You know, it's sort of a confusing thing that sounds old school, old-fashioned law. What, what was all that about? The Sabbath was about trusting God's power to save. That was the point. But for the Jews in the first century, it had become, in many circles, something quite different. Okay, because in an effort to avoid breaking the Sabbath, you know what they did? They created 39 different classes of prohibited work that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath day. And one of them was you could not pick up your bed. So when Jesus healed the invalid at Bethesda, they didn't celebrate. They, they didn't rejoice. They, they were ticked. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Does that strike you as strange? How on earth could anybody be so spiritually blind that instead of seeing the work of God, they see a rules violation. Really, how on earth? Well, maybe we're not just like the man. Maybe we're like the Jews too. Because they saw a legal violation for the same reason we miss out on the joy of experiencing God today. Works like this. Whenever we try to create our own rules, to, to try to earn God's favor, we, we stop trusting Jesus to save us and we start trying to save ourselves. Okay, that, that's what legalism is, by the way. What, what's legalism? You want a definition of that? A lot of people throw that around at Christians, right and left. Legalism? Well, let's define our terms, okay? Legalism is a futile attempt to earn God's love, acceptance, or approval through your obedience. That's legalism. And the Jews in Jesus' day fell into that exact trap, like we do, so, so on the very day, here's what was happening. The very day, the Sabbath, that they were supposed to be celebrating God's power to save, what were they busy doing? Perfecting their own. Their own power to save themselves. So you have the invalid looking to other people to save him. You have the Jews looking to themselves. And so when Jesus, because he's really good at this, invariably broke the rules 
of their self-salvation project, they got angry. Why? Because his actions violated the basis, the perceived basis of their relationship with God. That's why they got angry. If I, think of it this way, if I treat something as deadly serious, the basis of my relationship with God, and you treat it as an irrelevant or light matter, yeah, whatever, I'm not going to like you very much. And that's what's going on here. Verse 16, look there. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. It's a, it's a drop mic moment on Jesus' part. But what does he mean by that? And more specifically, why in the world did that defend or justify healing an invalid on the Sabbath? Jesus is saying two things here. First, when he spoke of God as my father, he's claiming a unique and intimately personal relationship with Yahweh for himself. I love how Leon Morris captures this scandalous assertion. Jesus was not teaching that God is the father of all. The Jews would have accepted that. His claim meant that God was his father in a special sense. He was claiming that he partook of the same nature as his father. And that involved equality. That's a big deal. Second, Jesus claimed to be doing the exact same sort of work that the father did. And we, we could have a whole message on this, but, but suffice it to say, Jesus, when he describes the father as working until now, he is flatly contradicting, directly opposing, correcting, rebuking any sort of deistic notion of God that, that would think of him as a, as a divine watchmaker that created the universe, wound it up, and then just sort of cut it loose to tick. Done with my work. Off it goes. Flatly contradicting that. All, all, all the sweet doctrines of, of God's providence, you know, of, of preservation, of, of concurrence, of, of government, of his sovereign rule over the universe, his work throughout the whole thing, all of that is bound up in verse 17. The Father is working until now. And the Jews would have agreed with that thus far. Because they held that, that God was not subject to the Sabbath laws the way his people were. They, they knew from Genesis 2 that, that God rested on the seventh day after working six days. But that couldn't mean he completely stopped working. Why not? Because somebody needed to continue to uphold and sustain the universe. And they knew God was the one doing that on the first Sabbath, on every subsequent Sabbath. So they would have been quite fine with Jesus saying, the father is working until now. But Jesus didn't stop with that. God the father is working until now. He spoke of God as my father. 
And then notice, he doubled down by identifying his work with the father's work. What's he doing? He's claiming the same Sabbath exception for himself that the Jews already recognized as belonging to God. As D.A. Carson says, Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation also justify his. That that is not a subtle defense. (laughs) That's an implicit assertion of deity. Jesus is self-consciously and deliberately locating himself within the confines of strict Jewish monotheism. The Lord, the Lord, our God is one. The very foundation the Jewish conception of reality. And Jesus is saying, I'm part of that. And that was blasphemy, which is why in verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God on purpose. So what's Jesus doing? He's, He did something only God can do, right? He healed a crippled man by the power of his word. He he displayed the decisive power of his mercy. And when the Jewish establishment questioned his authority, Jesus simply said, well, I have every right to do so because I'm God. Notice he didn't leave it up to them to decide who he was in their eyes. He doesn't give any of us the same freedom, friends. We don't get to pick who the son of God is. He reveals who he is. He identifies himself, which leaves us with a simple question that lies at the heart of John's gospel. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe his self-assertion that he is the Christ, the son of God? Do Do you accept his claim of a divine identity and trust him accordingly? Or do you fail to recognize him as the savior that he is because you're too busy saving yourself? Think about this. In John 5, you have two different kinds of people, crippled man and the Jews. But each of them fail to recognize Jesus. And the healing he alone can provide for the exact same reason. What's that? They think of salvation as a work of man. They're the same on the inside. The invalid focused on the deliverance that he thought other people could provide for him. The Jews focused on the deliverance they thought they could provide for themselves. Social justice train, self-improvement train. And we succumb, don't we, to the exact same traps today. In our marriages, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our church, in our nation, we we don't perceive Jesus as the Savior or, or trust him as the Savior because we've already designated someone else as the functional Savior. If other people would just stop treating me unjustly and lend me a hand, 
then I'll get the deliverance I need. If I can only manage to just check all the right religious boxes and keep all the right rules and and, and be disciplined, then I can get the deliverance I need. Whichever way you tend to go, hear the truth of John 5. No matter the situation, the healing you need comes from God, not man. Not other people, not yourself. And it's found in Jesus. So, so whether the trouble before you right now, friend, is, is without you or within you, don't, don't look to other people to fix that. Don't look to yourself to fix that. Look to Jesus, the Son of God. Cast your cares on him. Lean the weight of your life on him. Ask him to restore your body. Ask him to restore your soul. Because the deliverance you need is something only Jesus can provide. Let's pray. Lord, I have a sneaking suspicion that there are many in this room like myself who would not disagree with nearly everything I have said today. All that you have taught us in your word. That healing comes from you, Jesus. Not from man. Not from other people. Not from ourselves. Lord, we so quickly check that box. Yep, believe that. No, that's true. But then we march right out. (laughs) maybe even this afternoon. And we get angry at our kids because they failed once again to save the day and make it peaceful and quiet. Or we get angry at our spouse because they once again failed to save the day and pay that bill on time. We get angry at our government because once again, (laughs) they failed to save the day and make that wrong right. Or we wipe ourselves out, Lord. We give up on other people and say, well, if they're not going to, I know what I'll do. I'll just save the day. (laughs) I'll fix what's wrong with that kid. I'll clean up what's wrong in my workplace. I'll get myself elected and settle those politicians straight. Lord, we we just ping pong back and forth between they can save. No, they can't. I can save. (laughs) Jesus, we miss you entirely. Forgive us for that. Help us now as we sing this song to in our souls lean the weight of our cares our troubles on you as the God who saves and you alone. We pray in your name. Amen.